Before we get started on this week's edition of the Deconstruction Workers Podcast, I wanted to let you know about a fundraiser that is going on. This is Dr. Christopher Bell, and my sister has recently been diagnosed with cancer. Anyone who has ever gone through the cancer fight knows how awful and devastating it can be to a family, and our family is no exception. We have set up a GoFundMe fundraiser to help my sister raise the funds necessary to fight her cancer battle, and I would really appreciate it if you took a little bit of time and maybe donated a little bit of money. Five bucks, ten bucks, fifty bucks, whatever you got. However much you feel as though you can afford to give, we would love to have it. So, you can go to tinyurl.com slash dcwhelp. That's tinyurl.com slash dcwhelp and donate what you can. Thanks. And now, on to the show. University professors spend a lot of time talking to each other about popular culture in academic journals and at academic conferences. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals and I want to talk to you. Some of the most brilliant thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard and I'm on a mission to change that. Brilliant people, fascinating conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell and this is a hard hat area You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is the Deconstruction Workers Podcast. I am Dr. Christopher Bell. And today we are continuing our little stretch here of the podcast where we are inviting on some new deconstruction workers. My guest today is Grace Candido Beecher. Grace and I met at an academic conference about a year ago, and she's just a really all-around smart person. It'll be our first opportunity to talk to someone who is not a faculty member somewhere, who's not actively teaching, but who works in the field and still does research as what we in the business call an independent scholar, which is why I'm bringing her on to talk to us. Grace holds a degree in digital animation from Thomas Jefferson University. She is currently working as a visual communication designer. She is an animator. She's an artist. She's an illustrator. Uh, One day I have it in my brain somewhere that she and I are going to write a graphic novel together. (laughs) Please welcome to the show, Grace Candido Beecher. Thank you. Thank you. Imagine me bowing right now. That was a glowing review. (laughs) Thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate you. Thank you for having me. I've been very, very excited for this for a while. Grace and I are talking today about role playing, and we're going to talk about it in a couple of different ways. We're going to talk a little bit about cosplay because Grace is a professional cosplayer. We're going to talk a little bit about Dungeons and Dragons specifically because Grace and I are also both Dungeons and Dragons. Nerds. And so we're going to talk about some of the ideas and theories behind role play, why role playing appeals to people, and what kinds of things people get out of role playing. And then we're going to talk very specifically about the Dungeons and Dragons game. So, does that sound Mm -hmm. like a roadmap to what we talked about? Absolutely. Actually, I could talk about costuming and RPGs pretty much forever. Excellent. Let's start off talking a little bit about role-playing in general. 
in media studies, we talk a lot about uses and gratifications, what people do with media and what they get out of it. Role-playing really fits very nicely into a uses and gratifications approach of thinking about why someone might engage in this practice, because you're using a thing, you're consuming a thing, and then you're getting something really salient out of it. Mm -hmm. When it comes to people who tend to gravitate towards RPGs, it's because there's a bit of a storyteller in all of us. And we're kind of trying to find an outlet for each of the stories that we have that we're trying to tell. And when it comes to Dungeons and Dragons or any sort of RPG, it sort of reflects that in being an active part of each story. I think that's why I find video games to be so addicting. And the crowd of people who do love video games tend to go towards them all the time. It's just finding that active role that you can actually change the world that's around you. And it becomes even more pervasive when you delve into the tabletop RPG and even LARP categories. We'll come back to LARP. LARP being live action role play for people mm -hmm. who are not familiar with that. I think people don't understand at a very base level what kinds of things role playing involves. So when I think of role playing, when I think of role playing games, I think of them as cooperative storytelling. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. When you play a normal game, when you play Monopoly, when you play Sorry, when you play cards or chess, someone in that game is going to win and someone in that game is going to lose. That's the orientation we have towards gaming is that it's a zero sum. Mm -hmm. Someone is going to win, someone is going to lose. That's not really how role-playing games work at all. No one is going to win at Dungeons & Dragons. No one's going to win at a role-playing game. You engage in a role-playing game in order to embody a character in a specific setting and do the things that that character would do and say the things that that character would say in the service of everyone around the table telling one giant story. Absolutely. And it's funny. Once you go into a tabletop RPG setting, it's almost like a trust exercise with your buddies. Can we all be cool right now while I act like a wizard? Can we do this <laughs> together, please? Because <laughs> sometimes you just put your pride, all of your dignity aside and just be like, I'm going to act like a goblin for the next four hours and I need you all to be chill with this, okay? <laughs> just love my character with me. Can we do this? But I always find that there's two different types of people that come into D&D. And, and there's probably a ton more, but the ones that I tend to see coming back again and again are the kind that have the fantasy character that they just want to play like their ultimate them, their projection on the fantasy world. And there's a secondary kind of person who likes to just experiment and make the most buckwild thing that they could think of, even play that very seriously. I think that there's something to be said for role-playing games being a space in which you can kind of Mary Sue a little bit. Oh, absolutely. I was going to comment on that because I loved your episode on Mary Sue. Oh, thank you. Yeah, those of you who have listened to the Mary Sue episode in the second season understand this construct of taking the author and putting your, a version of yourself into the text. Mm -hmm. And that's what, as you said, a lot of role players do. A lot of role players are saying, here's me, just as me, but if I could also throw fireballs. Or yeah, here's me, like but if I was really yeah. good with a bow and arrow. Mm -hmm. My daughter, who plays Dungeons & Dragons with me in our little gaming group, my daughter is this kind of a gamer. She plays an elf She's good with a bow and arrow, but that character is really her. That's adorable. For those of you who know how Dungeons & Dragons work, you know you get six skill sets. So one of them is strength, 
which is how strong you are. One of them is intelligence, which is how smart you are. One of them is mm -hmm. wisdom, which is how much street smarts you have. One of them is charisma. And charisma is how much people like you. Most players, when they're building a player character, they'll put most of their points into strength or into dexterity, which is how agile you are, because it helps you fight. My yeah. daughter put the maximum number of points, 18 points in charisma, and everybody in the game likes her. And that's yeah, how girl. she plays. <laughs> that's the way she plays. <laughs> that would make one heck of a bard. <laughs> exactly. She, she kind of plays a bard and she walks into the space and everyone's like, oh, it's you and we love she you. She walks in and, and she owns it. Exactly. <laughs> in the context of the stories we always tell, she's very good at diplomacy. She's very good at talking shopkeepers into just giving her stuff for free. She's very good at... <laughs> Which is basically how my daughter That's operates so through her whole little 13-year-old life is just charming people into giving her stuff. <laughs> she plays a pretty mean version of herself in the game. Whereas another one of her friends, Tara, mm -hmm. plays a dwarf who's a fighter. Because in real life, she's just this very thin, very sweet very awkward, but in an adorable kind of a way, flute player in the band who then oh. shows up and plays this dwarf who hits people in the head with a hammer. So there's both of those kinds of characters in this game that we're running because, as you said, there are different ways people choose to escape into the fantasy. Mm -hmm. And make no mistake, these are all shades of us. In every character that you make... For every character that your friends make, there's definitely a shade of you in them or else you wouldn't be able to play them. There's just something very personal. There's something very intimate about making your character for a Dungeons & Dragons game, as strange as that does sound. It is kind of a study on the person's psychology to see how they act and how they react. I really love to see who people make. Like that first session is almost magical and seeing who people become. People discount the skill required in cooperative storytelling. And also mm -hmm. the benefits of doing that. I mean, I have watched a group of people ranging in age from in their 50s all the way down to my 13-year-old sit around a table and have to work together to solve conflict or and to figure out solutions to problems and to solve puzzles and to decide the best course of action and all of these communication skills that are very useful in quote unquote real life transfer mm -hmm. very easily into a role-playing situation. Yeah. I mean, I always find that, that it's an incredible situation to have such a variety of people at the table. When it comes to me and my friends, we're all pretty much around the same age. I know that using RPG, I think they're using it in a classroom. I read a, an article on it last night where players get to expand with different identities and simultaneously interact with skills. So they create their own personal narrative. And in doing so, they're able to explore parts of their own personality. And I think that that's so important, but I think another aspect of having everyone at the table together, just another shade of this, is that we work so much on computers. And even when you're playing Dungeons and Dragons on a computer, it's still required that you're interacting with people around you, technically, even if it is technologically. With a lot of social media these days, you just get to like something and scroll past it. When it comes to Dungeons and Dragons, it demands your entire attention be on someone else or on someone or on a communal storyline. And that's so rare these days. I think that's why Dungeons and Dragons has grown in popularity so much. 
at least part of the reason why. It's certainly come out of the basement, so to speak. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when I was a kid, we played in people's basements and it had a very Stranger Things first season kind of a feel to it. A group of Mm -hmm. boys sitting around a table having a fun time in this game. And more and more people who would normally not gravitate towards a role-playing game kind of situation have been brought into the Dungeons & Dragons universe, mostly through things like video games. It's a very short Mm -hmm. leap from an online video game role-playing experience to an actual role-playing experience. A lot of the terminology is the same. Because video games stole a lot from role-playing games at the very beginning of their inception. Things like hit points or armor class or these kinds of statistical things that help keep track of stuff in the game. That's all taken directly from role-playing game kinds of stuff. Yeah, the fundamentals of the game are just very easy to move from media to media, I guess. They're very easy to transmediate, to take from Mm -hmm. one area and move into another. But... If you already understand the basic concept of character creation and then inserting that character into the storyline, that's the basics of Dungeons & Dragons. All the other stuff is just, as a friend of mine said, my hobby involves cartography and accounting. (laughs) All the other stuff is just keeping track of stats and drawing the map. The actual gameplay part of it if you understand those fundamentals the storytelling part of it is easy we just roll dice just so that it's not you get to do whatever you want i know that would go buck wild (laughs) although i have played (laughs) diceless games before there are ways to make it work but everyone has to be invested in just telling the best story possible Mm -hmm. i'm be real with you one of the first ever dungeons and dragons game that i played and this i couldn't even consider dungeons and dragons it was a friend of mine running a personal game for me just with a D6. I'm pretty sure she made up the vast majority of it. But that's great. (laughs) It's all made up, but we weren't following any rules or anything. I think she was just basically using it as an excuse to do storytelling. I think that's great. (laughs) It was fantastic. Last summer, I helped out here on campus with a summer camp for kids. There was a summer camp and it was themed around superheroes and they had all of these kids come and they were designing characters and they were drawing comic books and it was a really very cool camp. And I came in one day to teach them how to tell a story with their heroes. And what I ended up doing really was just live dungeon mastering these 15 kids through a little (laughs) short scenario with a super villain and what is your character doing and what is your character doing and I was making all the decisions about their success or failure and we didn't have to roll dice but someone has to be in control of that situation in order for it to work out because the kids were just like and then I shoot him in the face with a laser beam and I win right so you have to temper that for those <laughs> yeah so you were kind of like the, the gateway to Dun- exactly. Dungeons and Dragons if you will exactly sort of a low level introduction Mm -hmm. to here's what it might look like i mean my first experience with it was middle school this was ages ago actually playing my first ever game of like the real game of DD, not just like a d6 and someone making stuff up was it in high school and i actually find that the starting points for for people with dungeons and dragons vary depending on whether or not they're male presenting or female presenting. I find that a lot of my male friends started up D&D way earlier than I did because I felt like I was just sort of out of that community completely. 
Mm-hmm. It didn't really, it wasn't really prevalent among girls until, oh, someone's boyfriend is hosting a game. Do you want to come over and chill? Or like, oh, my boyfriend is doing blah, blah, blah. I want to go and see their D&D game. It's usually that the girls got pulled into it. I think back and I wonder, I mean, I would think we probably would have played with girls if any girls wanted to play with us. I don't doubt that. I think that maybe there was just this belief. Because Dungeons and Dragons, I mean, back when Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson started it up, it was basically for their group of friends. So it was guys for guys when it first started out back in 1974. It's not unimaginable that it would take a good amount of time to get women involved in this, especially with the swap from 4th edition to 5th edition. There's a lot of changes that came with that new edition. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. Although I will say I grew up playing a very specific version of Dungeons & Dragons. Those of you who are old school Dungeons & Dragons players, you will understand what I mean when I say I grew up playing... Beckme Dungeons & Dragons. Beckme is an acronym. It's B-E-C-M-I, and it stands for Basic Expert Companion Master and Immortal. There were five box sets, a red set, a blue set, a brown set, a gold set, and your character progressed through the entirety of that box and then you'd have to buy the new box. So the red box with the dragon on the cover mm-hmm. that has the d- little dice set in it and a little paper dungeon master guide and a paper player's guide, that's the version I grew up on. What we consider fourth edition or fifth edition now really stems from what at the time when I was growing up was referred to as advanced Dungeons and Dragons. It was two different versions of the game. So in Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, some things changed. For example, it introduced races and classes mixed together. In the basic edition, for example, if you wanted to play an elf, an elf was just an elf. That was its class, as Mm -hmm. well as its race. So there were four classes. Fighter, which is exactly what it sounds like. And everyone who fights with a sword and a shield All fight all the time, 100%. All fight all the time. (laughs) Magic user which was every kind of wizard you can think of. Cleric, which are all of your healers and druids and all that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. And thief. And thief were all of your rogues, your assassins, your acrobats, all those classes. Those were only the four classes you could be. And then you could be elf, dwarf, or halfling, which is basically a hobbit. Was there human involved in the first one or was it just those? All fighters, all wizards, all clerics, and all thieves were considered to be human. Oh, wow. And if you wanted to play something that was not human, elf, dwarf, or halfling, it was both the race and the class at the same time. Elves and dwarves and halflings were all what internally in the game we refer to as multi-class. So... Elves were basically fighter magic users. Halflings were basically thief fighters. Mm -hmm. And dwarves were basically fighter clerics. So they were sort of dual classed. They got skills from both of those class groups. That's interesting. It's because this was spawned off of the original version, the original Gary Gygax version of Dungeons & Dragons, which was largely just rules he made up around... Tolkien's mythos around Lord of the Rings. And it's funny because if you go through the original manual, 
there's not so many mentions of Tolkien at all. There's not. I think they were just trying to avoid copyright infringement. They are. And the way they got around it was they switched the term Hobbit to Halfling. Mm -hmm. And everything else was generic enough that they couldn't say Tolkien made this up. There's always been elves. There's always been dwarves. But Tolkien invents the Hobbit. And so they switch its name to Halfling, but it still has all the same properties of a Hobbit. They just don't call it a Hobbit. I promised for our listeners who are not Dungeons & Dragons players that we would talk a little bit about what draws people to role-playing, and I think we've done that. And we've also talked a little bit about Dungeons & Dragons as a game, cooperative storytelling, problem-solving, teamwork. General addiction to it. (laughs) General addiction, right? We touched a little bit about women Mm -hmm. entering into the Dungeons & Dragons space, much like many other recreational pastimes. Dungeons & Dragons was created by men. It was largely seen as a male activity, at least through its early stages, Primarily because fantasy in general, weirdly enough, is often seen as a masculinized space, even though women have always been attracted to the fantasy setting. But if you think of something like Tolkien, for example, Tolkien didn't even bother to write any female characters at all in The Hobbit. There's like a handful tops. The Hobbit has none. Oh my God. Zero. Zero Tolkien, what? What happened? So (laughs) the fact that Dungeons & Dragons sort of springs from Tolkien's universe necessarily shut women out of the game of the process. Mm-hmm. The huge shift between fourth edition and fifth edition was really a calling to a lot of people who wanted to create characters that were much more multifaceted. I've never played fourth edition, but I know for a fact that fifth edition is really centered around storytelling and creating the, exactly the character that you want. And even now, I'm reading a lot of news stories online about how they're expanding the universe to include more LGBTQA and trans NPCs even in their new modules. NPCs being non-player characters, characters that are controlled by the dungeon master, not by the players. And the women joining the table are just far more visible. There's a lot of people who had hangups about joining the community because they didn't quite know how the game worked. And there being like a vein of almost perfectionism that's expected of a lot of women who join new communities. They get very nervous about joining something that they don't understand. So when you see a lot of people on Twitch streaming their games or huge, very well-known games like Crit Roll that streams all of their stuff, it makes it very easy for someone to get online and watch someone else play D&D and get more acclimated to the sort of terminology and the setting and what's expected of each of the characters. So it makes it much less daunting for someone new to join the table. I think another thing that gets discounted, but that I certainly noticed once I was an adult... Mm-hmm. And it's part of the reason why I wanted to ask you specifically to come on and to talk about Dungeons & Dragons a little bit is that if I now as an adult looking through the Dungeons & Dragons books, particularly the ones that I grew up with, but even the ones from modern incarnations of third and fourth and to some extent even a little bit fifth edition, although fifth edition, as you said, has made some shifts. But one of the things that would put me off as a woman trying to join this space is is the artwork in the books. I have 
so many issues with the early artwork because the old 80s artwork, even for like the Dragonlance covers, it's beautiful work on one level. You could see it's very painstakingly crafted. And if you listen to a lot of interviews about Larry Elmore and his team's efforts in creating this artwork, it sounds like it was very painstaking. It sounds like it was really a huge job that they did a great job doing. That being said, the women are all the same. They're all the same. They're all wearing far too little clothing. And what clothing they are wearing is far too form-fitting, especially for an adventuring party. It just, it makes no sense. And it's very frustrating. <laughs> I have this issue with so many forms of media, but going back on old Dungeons and Dragons, it really just uh, grates on me. <laughs> it feels very off-puttingly 1970s, 1980s sexist. It just feels straight up gross. It feels Am I wrong? It, just no, feels it feels awful. very it feels very gross to me. I'm kind of ashamed to show those older pictures to my other friends starting to get into this stuff. I'm like, don't look at the look at the new stuff, please. As a woman in actual armor, can we please just go there <laughs> instead? I mean, one of the things that drew me to the fifth edition I, I, and I don't play standard Dungeons and Dragons. Even with my own gaming group, we play Beckme. I've gone back and mm-hmm. downloaded the original basic set expert set the rules. OG. <laughs> yeah, so we're playing OG, the one that I grew up with. But mm-hmm. in the fifth edition book, the very first page I opened to, I opened the book and I was going to flip through and the page that I opened to had this really beautiful artwork on it of a woman who was also brown, who dun, was dun, dun. doing adventuring stuff. And I looked at that and I was like, wow. If you had told me when I was a kid that someday the first picture you would see in Dungeons & Dragons would be of a black woman who's drawn with a regular-sized body wearing actual armor doing adventuring stuff would be in the pages of this book, I don't, I don't think I would have believed you. Yeah, and if I, if I might say so, if I'm thinking of the same woman, which I think I am, this is the player's handbook, right? Yeah. Oh my God, she looks so badass. Like she looks so good and she looks like a normal person and it's so gratifying to see. (laughs) Right. I mean, I would, I would argue that she actually doesn't look like a normal person. She looks like an adventurer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is absolutely which is beyond anything that I saw growing up as a kid. I'm so thankful for this now. I feel like the illustration team currently for Dungeons and Dragons and Wizards of the Coast, they're doing such a great job and they're working day to day to do an even better job. So I'm pretty thankful for that. Someone is putting conscious thought into how these characters are being portrayed on the pages of this manual. Mm-hmm. It's because and I feel like a lot of people in the LG LGBTQA community are also joining the table for the same reasons that the ladies are, because it's easier to find the rules, it's easier to watch people playing, and it's a lot easier to find a group now, too, a group of your friends that's willing to put their imaginations together and make a story. But it also means that you can create the characters that you always wish to see in media. And I see so much online, and like this is just me scrolling through Tumblr and stupid stuff like this, but I see so much online of people from the LGBTQA community that pick monster characters because of how monsters have been portrayed in media year after year after year. 
So to create this character that's been cast as these sexual deviants or these awful, violent people who are just there to corrupt everyone else, to play that in the game and show them as an actual individual with humanity is something very freeing to a lot of these people. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's, a, it's part of the reason why we're also seeing more people of color who are willing to come out of the shadows and say, yes, I play this game too. Because Absolutely. Now, now it represents me. Right. Now it represents me in a way that it always did in my head because it is a storytelling imagination game. But now it also does out here where people can see it. Mm-hmm. And this might date your podcast a little bit, but me and my husband were talking about this video game that we've been addicted to. Not to derail the conversation, it's in the same vein. But the whole cast of characters, it's from Fire Emblem, it just came out maybe a few weeks ago. The whole cast of characters is very forward-thinking in comparison to a lot of their previous works. You can even be in a same-sex coupling in this game. But I look at it and I'm like... There are absolutely no people of color here. There's maybe one or two in a cast of at least 25 to 30. You guys can do better than this now? This is ridiculous. <laughs> All you literally have to do is take your cast and just ask, why is this person not a person of color? And change them. <laughs> All these storylines do not hinge upon this. I don't know. Drives me up a wall. <laughs> It's a perennial problem that I have just at video games in general, because mm -hmm. it's really not that hard to create characters of color within your universe. It's just really not. It's not. Let's pause here. Let's take a short break. We're going to come back in two and two. I know you're sitting there right now enjoying this podcast, The Deconstruction Workers, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? If you have, let me talk to you a little bit about Blueberry.com. Blueberry is the hosting service where The Deconstruction Workers lives and thousands of other podcasts. There are no contracts with Blueberry.com. You can cancel at any time. Blueberry is optimized for Apple, for Google Podcasts, for Spotify. There's free technical support. You are given a free WordPress website. Blueberry.com is an amazing place to host a podcast and it is very, very affordable. If you'd like to give it a try yourself, go to www.blubrry.com. Use the promo code PODCASTDCW and get a free month. And now back to the show. And we're back. Yay! Yay! So we've been talking about role-playing games, we've been talking about Dungeons & Dragons, but at the top of the show, I did promise that we would talk a little bit about role-playing in terms of cosplay, because you're a professional cosplayer, and I would like to talk a little bit about the connection between collective storytelling and role-playing and cosplaying, or costume play dressing up as a character which is so much fun if any of you are on the fence about this please give it a shot when it comes to cosplay all that you really need is a genuine love of the character that you're dressing up as me and my husband do it professionally from time to time and it's pretty rarely usually it's just a passion project of ours we'll find a few characters that we really love out of something and sort of pluck them out of the game slash movie slash whatever else we're gonna do and then just create something out of our need to be this character if only just for a little bit 
when it comes to actually playing the role of the character, I think that cosplay is fun, but it's more so meant to just be a fun experience where you hang out with a lot of your friends and you costume either within a group or just at an event together. I think when it comes to role playing a character, that's I think that's more in a LARPing vein of cosplay or just costuming in general. And I know LARP is on the rise. I would say I don't know quite as much about it being on the rise as I do D&D. But I do know that there are some huge events that happen both in America and also overseas. There's one that's, I think, in Germany and one in the UK that tends to draw a huge crowd. But I've been to a few different LARPing, I can't even call it a session, LARPing events. And they, they go as far as to camp out for a week if they want to, which I couldn't quite afford to take off that for work. But <laughs> I did go for a day or two. And they are incredible. The, the amount of energy that you have to put into LARPing just in general and having the costume on all day, also fighting in the costume and being in character is just mind blowing to me. I know at a certain point, me and my husband, uh, we had to run back in to grab something that we had left within the main tavern area. And they spotted us without our wigs or without me, without my wig on, because I was wearing a wig that day. And they were like, oh my goodness, so-and-so character, your hair has changed, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, I've got to run now. Okay, bye. When I was in graduate school, mm-hmm. I worked at a summer camp as a camp counselor. And the whole premise of the camp was a kid would come to the camp for a week and they would get put into a small group of six or seven kids and they would have one counselor and the counselor would start on Monday telling this live action role-playing story. And we would hike the kids all through the foothills of Boulder because I was going to school in Boulder here in Colorado. Mm -hmm. So we would walk them through the foothills through the, we would take mountain hikes, low mountain bouldering hikes. And we would, role play this game as we walked around. That is such a fantastic idea. Every kid got a little foam sword, specially built for the camp. Every kid would get this little foam sword. Eventually it sort of expanded out so you could get a sword or you could get an axe or you could get a spear or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we would, on the hike, we would tell the stories and then when there were encounters when there was a monster or there was you know a group of bandits who tried to jump them the counselor would play all the monsters and the kids would get to fight against the counselor and if the kid wanted to do something like i want to cast a spell or i want to try to shoot him with a bow or whatever we would just rock paper scissors and that took the place of a dice roll and so you rock paper scissors and if you won you would get to do it and if you lost you wouldn't and then we would just move on with and tell the story of what happened or whatever and if you wanted to do something really difficult like i want my character to you know i'm gonna jump up and i'm gonna swing off the chandelier of the inn and i'm gonna do a backflip and i'm gonna land on the bandit's shoulders it might take you winning two rock, paper, scissors in a row or three rock, paper, scissors in a row mm-hmm. to up the difficulty. And so you would tell one giant story over the course of the week. And then every Friday afternoon, all the groups would have finished the adventure. Everyone would have won. And then all the kids.
kids would have won the big the big battle and would have won or whatever. And then on Friday afternoons, there would be a festival and everyone could go to the festival and it's where we would all have lunch together and play games. And That is so sweet. Yeah, it was really, really fun. The kids got a lot out of it. And since then, I associate that more with live action role play than with a lot of the adult more dress up and the very complicated style of garb and whatnot. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or what I consider Renaissance Festival cosplay. It's oh, a very yeah. different environment. Because the kids, they didn't really have to dress up if they didn't want to. And it was really more about telling the story. Where I feel like a lot of adult LARP is about being in a battle. It really does depend on the LARP that you're jumping into. Because I wasn't involved in these LARPs personally, but they're ones that are mainly based around character development and political intrigue. There's so many different types of LARPs out there. I know I collected a few from online, but I know personally just from watching a few of them on Twitch, there's the Vampire the Masquerade one that's very much just centered around your character versus whatever system that they're in. And it's not even necessarily a battle game, though there are battles that can be involved. It's more so just political intrigue and drama, a whole lot of drama with those guys. And I know from just looking online, there were there are some that they're post-apocalyptic. So that's, it, I think, would be more of a power struggle one where certain people are vying for power. There's Jane Austen-style LARPs that they go on. So that's another weird take on classism, I would say. <laughs> Right. There's even one set in New York during the AIDS crisis. I know that for sure. I've seen news stories on that one. But they're they're mm. really meant to help people develop empathy. There's a lot of studies that go into RPGs and how they help with people just interacting and empathizing with one another. I've never been involved in the more alternative LARPs. The only one that I did was basically for a few days tops. But it was really interesting and took a whole lot of energy to be in. But these other ones do sound like they're doing some strangely innovative work. I've never really encountered any of these alternate kinds of live action role play, but I can see where people would really get into those. Mm -hmm. I've definitely heard about the post-apocalyptic one. I've just heard from a few people and and had their costuming exercise, not exercise, but their costuming methods. One guy was describing how he hammers at the leather of his jacket to make it look like it's more worn out and how much time he spends on doing things like that. There's a lot of people involved in Vampire the Masquerade. I know that's a big deal. I've never done one of those, but that's always been a very popular LARP subject. Not even LARP, RPG. It could be just an RPG for that one. When I consider what Dungeons & Dragons, what live-action role-play, what role-playing games in general do, for people on a uses and gratifications front, I think the word that I keep coming back to is community. Mm -hmm. It's a way for people to enter into communities of like-minded people who want to explore different ways of being in a world. I want to tell a story about a thing with other people who will tell this story with me where none of us know what's going to happen. None of us know where the story's going. Even the dungeon master doesn't know where the story's going. Yeah. The dungeon master knows where they want the story to go, but anyone who's ever game mastered, anyone who's ever been, essentially the dungeon master is the narrator. Yeah. 
of a story and plays all of the non-player characters, plays all of the bit parts and shopkeepers and just ran and all of the villains as well, all of the bad guys. Yeah. So the dungeon master has an idea of where they want the story to go, but anyone who's ever dungeon mastered knows players are going to do a thing you weren't expecting them to do, and the story is going to move in a different direction. It's always so much fun to see the slight panic in their eyes. (laughs) You're doing what? Do you want to roll for that? Or... Although I will say I would not know because, and this is not, I'm not making this up, in the nearly 40 years that I have played Dungeons & Dragons, I have never, not one single time ever actually played Dungeons & Dragons. Not once. I have never been in a game where I was not the Dungeon Master. Not one single time. I have always only Dungeon Mastered. Oh, Chris, that makes me want to Dungeon Master a game for you. <laughs> and I've never Dungeon Mastered. In all, in all my years of playing D&D, I've never actually Dungeon Mastered. I've just had many, many good Dungeon Masters around me. <laughs> when I first started playing, when I was probably 10 or 11 years old, I think I probably just volunteered to be the Dungeon Master for the first time because someone had to do it. So it's how I learned how to play the game. So then I was the only way I ever played the game. And now, even as an adult, I still am always the Dungeon Master. I've heard the quote, if you DM, they will come. (laughs) (laughs) But I have one extra thing to add on to your thoughts on D&D and why people play it in general. And I definitely believe 100% what you said. But I would like to add, there's a great saying, and I don't remember it specifically, but it was from one of the Twitch games that I watch called May Black Roses Bloom. It's uh, based off of the Dragonlance book series. One of the characters was commenting on why specifically they play Dungeons and Dragons. And it was to have a hero moment. Everyone in the game should have their hero moment. Even if you're playing a villain, the villain's going to have their rendition of a hero moment. But it's so that you can sort of, in your own way, your own mental fantasy novel for this character, you can stand out and do exactly as you want them to do, as you've wanted this character to behave. You want to create this character's story, and this character is a part of you. So basically, you want to have your own hero moment within the story. I think that that's really important to a lot of people, especially to a lot of the the people out there who feel like they've got a story locked inside them and they're just trying to look for that outlet for it. I agree. I we used to do that with the kids when I worked at the summer mm-hmm. camp. Every child was allowed one time per story. So at some point during the week, a kid was allowed to have what we used to call a heroic feat. That is, a kid would get a chance to do a feat of heroism, and whatever it was, that kid got to do it. So for some kids, it was, I jump on my shield, and I slide down the hill, and I fire off arrows, and it- Pull a Legolas, basically. (laughs) Pull a Legolas, right? Or I shoot my arrow, and it bounces off of the suit of armor on the wall, and it cuts the ropes that freeze all of my friends. So for some kids, it was that. But my favorite part would be when it would be a kid who has been a little quiet all week, who plays and is having fun clearly, but doesn't try to be the center of attention, doesn't whatever. And they would say something like, I convince the nobles to lend us their horses. And I'd be like, that's how you want to use your heroic feet. You want to, you want to use the one chance you get to be the center of attention to basically provide for everyone else. 
and to watch how that's the thing that brings that kid joy. That would always be my favorite. That is so fantastic. I was actually just going to ask, did the kids ever use it to create peace with whatever enemies that they had? Because I keep hearing all these stories of people who typically would go into an encounter and just kill all the goblins, mow down everybody, and they would just convince everyone that everything is okay. And then the goblins would all be friends with them or something like that. The camp used to run what were called Pegasus groups. Mm -hmm. And Pegasus groups were groups that a parent or a kid could choose to be in where it was all girls. And it was always a young woman who was a counselor Mm -hmm. for that group, and they could play with all girls. And they would have to play the same adventure. But when the counselors would get together after all the kids went home every afternoon and talk about how the adventure was going and whatever, the Pegasus groups always had the best stories because a group of all girls will solve the problems completely differently than a group that has even one boy. Oh, that is wild. That is really cool. I often played in groups that had one girl or two girls and then boys as a part of the group. But those Pegasus groups, I was always really envious of the women who got to lead those groups because their stories always sounded so much more fun. That's a lot more creative. Yeah. It's a lot more how the boys would be like, we fought the centaurs. And then the girls would be like, we made friends with the centaurs. And then they let us ride them to the village. And then we didn't have to fight the goblins because they took us away. We didn't know. (laughs) It was, they always just had these really great stories about, how they problem solve differently than the boys who, as you said, mostly just wanted to kind of stab mm-hmm. stuff. Which is a whole nother problem within itself. I don't know if you ever found within your D&D groups that there would always be a few individuals, usually guys, who would always want to be the best fighter, the best whatever. They would always be the best at pretty much everything. <laughs> There's always an element within every group that I play of someone who wants to play a character whose first instinct is to fight. It's the worst. <laughs> and so every now and then in a, in a campaign, I will always throw a random something, a random goblin, a random orc, basically a guy walking down the street just to see if that person is going to try to fight it. Mm-hmm. But by the same token... I am really, really enjoying playing, as I said, with my daughter who just wants to play this rock star who has this reputation in the village and who never Mm -hmm. actually fights anything. I feel like that's a good way to play. There was an encounter, the very first encounter I played with their little group, they had to, some goblins had captured a unicorn and they had tied it up and they were going to put it in a pot and they were going to eat it. And they had to go down into the goblins' caves and sneak around and maybe fight some goblin guards or whatever, but they had to rescue the unicorn. That was the whole little adventure. It was just supposed to take an afternoon. Mm -hmm. So they go down, they're rescuing the unicorn. Some people are fighting the goblins. I have one thief, the rogue, is like sneaking around the side to stab goblins in the back or whatever. And my daughter decides she's going to cut the ropes on the unicorn while nobody's looking and then put on a show. So she was riding the unicorn around in a circle and doing tricks and stuff. And <laughs> and everyone was so charmed by it and so mesmerized that they couldn't fight because they were busy watching her and watching all the amazing tricks she was doing. And she has an 18 charisma. And so she just keeps rolling against her charisma and winning over and over and over again. And none of the goblins can do anything. <laughs> And she finishes all the tricks, she bows, her and the unicorn exit stage right, which is out of the cave, and she rescues the unicorn, basically kind of by herself while everyone else is fighting. And I was like, that's the most amazing solution that I never would have thought of. (laughs) 
That is so cute. That is so nice. See, I feel like there's been a lot of times at the table where I, and I've, I've kind of become accustomed to it, but having a lot of guys in the group, because a lot of guys tend to play D and D it's really hard to get your voice heard. You either have to wait for timing because there's a lot of people screaming at the table, or you have to basically just demand silence. Not having a voice that's quite as loud can really work against you when you're trying to actually do something within the campaign. And I find that happens not only just to me, but to other women who are at the table. And I've never actually played with just a female group of role players, I suppose. So that would be a really refreshing experience to actually just have girls at the table. But it's one of those weird challenges that you don't think that you'll come up against until you're right up against it. Yeah, I would enjoy probably playing that kind of game as well. In our little gaming group, it's pretty 50-50. There are four girls and women and three men who play. So we're actually outnumbered slightly. Oh, good on you. I almost never hear that. Well, it started off as my daughter's best friend didn't want to play, but her older sister did. And so their dad really wanted to play. So him and I were going to teach the two of them how to play. And then her mom wanted to play. So we added her to the group. My wife did not want to play. So she... Aww. Yeah. My wife and I have this long-standing running joke that the worst thing about her is that she hates games. She doesn't like any kind of board game, really. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, which has been a long-standing feud in my house because I love games. So... <laughs> Games are a lot of fun. I, I always <laughs> joke, these are the kinds of things you should figure out before you get married. <laughs> it's like us with horror movies. My husband's out right now seeing a horror movie. I just can't stand horror right, stuff. Right, exactly. You know? <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. In an ideal world, my wife would love to play games, but she doesn't. So she didn't want to play, but his wife did. So we added her so that it was three to two. And then a family friend of ours was over one day and she heard that we were setting this game up to teach. And she was like, well, my kids would love to play. So she brought her son and daughter because she had played all through high school. And she was like, so I'll mm -hmm. play. And I, so she brought her son and daughter. That's our group. So it's. This sounds like the most wholesome group in the world. It's, it's <laughs> it sounds very, fun. very sweet and nice. It is a very sort of fun and funny, wholesome group. We have a really good time. It's a mix of adults and kids. And the kids are also a mix of ages. Everything from, like I said, my 13-year-old all the way through Tara's in high school. Kiara, who's our friend's daughter, she just graduated from high school. She's a freshman in college. There's a range of kids and then there's a range of adults. And it's it's really fun. We, we're really That's really cool. I've never heard of that. Yeah. That's a really beautiful thing. And like I said, it all started because we were just going to teach our two middle school daughters how to play. Mm -hmm. I mean, first game is always the hardest to start learning, right. but it's really great to have a veteran with you, basically, to sort of show you the ropes. All the adults had played before and none of the kids had, so it was really... And things change so much from edition to edition. I mean, it, I guess it's actually really good that you guys are playing the one that you grew up with because it's much better to teach someone something that you actually are familiar with. Because if I were to even try to jump into fourth edition, or 3.5 it would be way over my head <laughs> i listen to a few podcasts where they go through the rules on a lot of different things and the lore from a lot of different editions of DD. &D. and one of the ones that i listen to is the dungeon cast and the one host on it is constantly referencing fourth edition and the stories from fourth edition the lore from it sounds very interesting but everything else sounds so very confusing to me. Bringing it back into sort of the academic space, this is why I think there are so many uses and gratifications that people 
who engage in role playing get from that experience because the idea that we are collectively together in real time writing a novel essentially between Mm -hmm. the people at the table where everyone gets equal input everyone has say over what their character does and everyone gets a moment in which they are the center of the story I think is an amazing kind of an experience that culturally we don't really have an equivalent to in any other way. And I feel like where social media has been going recently with almost how poisonous it can be for certain mindsets, it's very helpful to have something that's really based off of collective storytelling, being with someone and being 100% within the moment with this group of people. It's almost sort of magical that you've also agreed to be within this space, within this world together and create the story. I feel like it's so important now more than ever. In the grand scheme of things, role-playing games are one of the most positive expressions of popular culture that we have in contemporary society. Absolutely. Hands down. (laughs) So that brings us to our place where we always end up, which is at the end of the day, role-playing games, Dungeons & Dragons... So what? Ah, uh, see, you know what? I was listening to the podcast just yesterday and I knew that this question was coming up and still, still I find myself stumped by it. So what? I believe that, I mean, for the, the reasons that we were talking about, really, with the empathetic connection that you develop with people, that's reason enough to have within your life some kind of Dungeons and Dragons or role-playing game equivalent it really just helps you expand your mindset and feel comfortable enough with some people around you to create something beautiful. It's an art form. I would absolutely agree with that. I do believe it's an art form. That makes sense in that context. My apologies if it doesn't. No, it absolutely does. I would also say that the game itself is really just a set of parameters inside of which to tell a story. It doesn't matter if it's Dungeons and Dragons. It doesn't matter if it's Gamma World or if it's Star Frontiers or GURPS or whatever game system you want to play. That's just a set of parameters and background. It's the exposition to the story. And you could play without any of those things and still have the same kind of experience. And for me, that's the more important part. Oh, absolutely. In any particular game, I remember when I was a kid, it was uh, Dungeons & Dragons is going to lead to you being satanic or whatever. And there's all the satanic panic stuff of the 1980s. But I was Mm -hmm. never wrapped up in that because I was always like, then let's don't play Dungeons & Dragons. Let's play some other version of role-playing. Let's play science fiction. Both Gamma World and Star Frontiers were science fiction. Or let's play Boot Hill, which was all cowboys. It doesn't have to be spell casting and wizards can be anything. Mm-hmm. The concept in general of D&D corrupting someone's mind is just so ridiculous and out there. It's just anything alternative. It's just always seen as something like of that nature, you know? Well, anything we don't understand. <laughs> Any, mm-hmm. Anything we don't understand is automatically labeled as bad. But that is another show for a whole nother day. I really want to thank Grace for joining me today. I think this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm really excited that you decided to join us and hopefully we can have you back to talk about some other kinds of stuff. I am so grateful to have been on this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was so wonderful and chill and fun. I feel so invigorated right now. I just want to go and read a ton of D&D stuff. (laughs) I encourage you to do that. And I encourage our listeners to do that as well. 
But for Grace Candido Beecher, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. We have been the Deconstruction Workers. We'll see you in two weeks. Have a good rest of your day. Take care. Bye. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Even better, become a sponsor of the show at patreon.com slash podcastdcw. Check out thedeconstructionworkers.com or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for the Deconstruction Workers podcast was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and academic public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is copyright 2019, all rights reserved.